Have you ever tried doing two things at once? Uh, I have, and it usually ends up with me failing at one, uh, if not both. Uh, but in the end, you have to choose in many scenarios whether you do one thing really well or fail at multiple things. Uh, it reminds me of this moment when I was in, I think it was middle school, and I was homeschooled in middle school, uh, but I lived on a block with some public school friends. And I remember the moment my friends like intermixed for the first time, and I, I was in you know two different worlds, and my public school friends and my homeschool friends did not get along. And I remember feeling like I'm in two different camps, and I have to pick a side. Otherwise, if I don't do anything, I'm just going to lose both these friendships, and everything's going to fall apart. I have to pick something or the divide is going to kill me. Well, today, we're going to look at the example of Solomon. We're going to look at his rise, his wisdom, his construction of the temple, and see how it all fell apart. Right now, we're in a sermon series called The Chronicles of the Kings, where we're walking from 1 Samuel all the way through the end of Chronicles and looking how we cannot repeat the mistakes of the past, but take some of the wisdom and apply it to today. As we dive into the case of Solomon, we're going to see how even the wisest man to live, at least mere man, can fall into a trap when he's faced with a divided heart. And so Solomon's story begins with wisdom, but not that wisdom. I know what you're all thinking of. You're like, I've heard this one, the prayer, like that's where we're starting, right? No, we'll get to that, but hold your horses, because first, before we get there, we have Solomon speaking with his father, David, in 1 Kings chapter 2. We see David saying to Solomon, Act therefore according to your wisdom, for you are a wise man. Now, when you look at the verses like this, it looks all well and good, right? A father telling his son to rule in wisdom. But when you read the context, when you read the rest of the verses, you realize that the wisdom that David suggests is, Hey, Solomon, use your wisdom. Kill the people who opposed me and solidify your rule doesn't really sound quite as good. I mean, look at the verses. According to your wisdom, do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Now, that's not the kind of wisdom we were expecting, and yet that's how Solomon's story begins, with wisdom, but not necessarily the wisdom given by God. Solomon's wisdom ends up looking like killing a man in the sanctuary, one of these guilty ones. Uh, it looks like trapping a man in an impossible situation so he has an excuse to murder him. And his wisdom also leads him to marry a princess of Egypt to solidify some peace with Pharaoh. Before we get to the encounter where Solomon asks God for wisdom, we see that he's a shrewd, if a little bit shady, ruler. Uh, he has the intelligence to do what it takes to rule and to solidify that rule. And yet, some of his actions kind of lead into these gray areas. No one was supposed to be killed before the altar of the Lord. That should have taken place elsewhere. And nobody was supposed to marry foreign women, especially not the king, and especially not to get safety from Egypt. And so, before we get to this conversation with God, we see him acting shrewdly on behalf of his kingdom and his interests in trying to solidify his rule. And the question that we're going to have to wrestle with, the first of several, is this, what happens when we put wisdom over worship? What happens when we place wisdom over worship? You know, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jason highlighted this phrase that we say a lot in the covenant, the phrase, God's glory and neighbor's good. 
even here at the outset of Solomon's story, I see a tension in his actions between God's glory and his nation's good, where he feels split between the two. At sometimes we see him playing into where he's supposed to, where he's living for God, even says he's trying to love the Lord and act that way. But at other moments, we see him doing what is best for the nation, although it might not be exactly what God has commanded. And this is going to go from a high point where he tries to do both to a tension where in the end he chooses something versus what God would call him to do. And so let's look at how this begins, where it leads to, and how it ends in a division and collapse. But first, we've got Solomon talking with God. Here in 1 Kings chapter 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Even from this moment, we see Solomon being caught. We see that he loved the Lord, that he started in the statutes of his father David. But then there's that little word, only. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. It's like a little sliver that's going to work its way deeper and deeper to cause a division in the heart of Solomon. And so, while he loves the Lord, while he is trying to live out this path that God has laid before him, he makes these sacrifices before God, and God meets him in it. And let's see where things go. Uh, in verse 5, it says this, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your, your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And so Solomon asks for wisdom. He recognizes that although he has some skills and some tact and some wisdom of his own, this might be enough to solidify his kingdom and do what his father has laid before him, but it's never going to be enough to lead God's people and to govern this nation. And so he asks God for wisdom. And, and I want to pause here and just say, wisdom is good. This is a good request. God is pleased with this. The book of James tells us if we lack wisdom to ask God because he would like to give us wisdom. Asking for wisdom is good. And so as we ask this question, what happens when we place wisdom over worship? I want to tell you that wisdom is not the enemy. Wisdom is a gift from God. The problem is when wisdom takes the place or goes above worship. And so let's look and see these words from the Lord in response to Solomon's request. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, just because you have asked, or because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself an understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before and none like you shall arise after. 
I also give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. And so God delivers to Solomon what he asked for. And he highlights in the midst of that, if you will walk in my ways and keep my statutes. It's a if that continues to come up as we go through this story. But here, God gives him wisdom, but says, I'm going to give you more than that. Because you made a good request here, because your heart is after me and to rule my people, I'm going to bless you with even more than that. And so that is what happens. Because Solomon asks for wisdom, God is able to pour out his blessings on Solomon and on Israel. And it really looks like we're finally going to get what we were supposed to get, right? This nation of Israel that is ruled by a righteous king that represents the Lord and the Lord can bless it and everyone can look and say, wow, how great is God? Look at how great Israel is. And yet, even as Solomon acts in wisdom, even as Israel gets these blessings, even as he garners wealth from other nations and we see the bounty of the kingdom of God, even as he builds the temple, that little splinter remains, that only that we saw the author of Kings put in there. We're left to ask the question, when does wisdom rise over worship? When does this tension become a division that ends in collapse? Well, we're not there yet. In chapter four, we see more of what happens when God is blessing the king and when the king is following him and when the, 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 whole, the whole thing is working as it should. It says, uh, well, I encourage you to read more of chapters three through five. We're not going to have time to get through all of them, although I'm going to try. (laughs) Uh, But you can actually see the bounty and the wisdom of Solomon at play in in a lot of different ways. But I'll just read you a couple of brief instances here. Um, We've got in chapter 4, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Man, to have a ruler that it felt like you could just be at peace and eat and drink and be happy— And then it says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. This is the promised land. This is the area that God said he was going to give to his people. We see Solomon ruling over it and God blessing them. They really do have everything. And then 1 Kings goes on to describe the wisdom that Solomon has. Uh, tell me if you want, like, want to hang out with this guy. It says, and, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, the breath of mind like the sand of the shore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And then it lists a bunch of people he's smarter than and says, and he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his Psalms were 1,005. And then he describes, the, he, he spoke of trees and of of little vines, and of all kinds of animals, right? It says what? Uh, It says of birds, and beasts, and reptiles, and fish. There's nothing that this dude could not speak authoritatively on, whether it's from how to handle a family dispute, to how to rule a kingdom, to how to build something, to the nature itself that God has created. His wisdom was everywhere. We get this picture of Solomon the king living in this wisdom amidst this blessing of the Lord. And it's hard to imagine how this can go wrong. 
We're finally seeing God's kingdom lived out where people are coming to Solomon being like, wow, how did you get this wise? Your nation is amazing and your God must be amazing. And it's in this context of prosperity, of of the Lord's name starting to be lifted up among the peoples of the world that the temple is built. And after years of construction, we see this temple built by Solomon, which has precious metals, and it has uh, gold covering portions of it. It has gemstones. It has cut stones and trees. And you can get bogged down in the details, but the fact is this is a beautiful construction that is meant to be befitting the God of all creation. You know, if you've ever been, I don't know if anyone in, in here at Cedar Church has been to the Vatican or seen uh, some of the things in Italy and in Rome, like that's what they tried to do. I don't know if you have at home, but if you ever see that, the Sistine Chapel, the, these giant cathedrals, they didn't build them for themselves. They built those to show the greatness of the God that is worshiped in them. That's what the temple was supposed to accomplish. And you really get that from these pages. And... First Kings goes on in chapter 7 to say that Solomon made a hall of pillars and he made a hall of the throne and he made a house where he is to dwell and he made a house for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. We see Solomon building this beautiful temple out of all these costly things and Kings also highlights using those same costly things, he made these things for himself. Now, Through his wisdom, Solomon is able to build and deserve a palace, deserve these things in a way that the kings before him had not. He made this kingdom very wealthy. And yet, as you read through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and hear these descriptions, you begin to see a tension put in there by the author of Kings, a tension between the description of the Lord's house and the description of what Solomon had built for himself. There's a tension between what he does for himself and his kingdom and what he does for God and his temple. And it's almost as if the author's intentionally showing us that, to show us that that splinter is perhaps dividing a little bit more as we go. It's almost as if the division is played out in what he chooses to build and where he does it. And as Solomon finishes his palace and finishes the temple, he has this prayer that he prays. And as we jump into it, I want us to think about our second question. Our second question is this. What happens when we choose convenience over covenant? What happens when we choose convenience over covenant? What happens when we press into our desires over the promises of God? What happens when we begin to see, more importantly, how do I get the things that I want and through them help God versus the other way around. Because Solomon is going to pray a beautiful prayer, but if they're just words, it's going to lead to some problems. Let's look at that prayer here in 1 Kings chapter 8. It says these words, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He describes the God that he has built this beautiful temple to. And then he goes on to say, who, who are we to build the temple for you? And who are you to choose to dwell in it? If you jump to verse 27, it says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you how much this house I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. 
O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. You'll notice in that prayer, Solomon repeatedly talks about God hearing from his temple the prayers of his people. If they would just pray to him, he would hear them because now he dwells among his people. And if you were to go on reading, uh, there's too much there for me to put it all in slides before you, but I'll give you a summary. He continues to pray and say, if a man sins against his neighbor, uh, then hear from heaven. If a man, uh, if, if, if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned, then hear their prayers. If heaven is shut up because there's no rain and they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name, then hear their prayers. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or bright, blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at the gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or plea, it goes on and on and on. He says, hear their prayer and turn and forgive. Solomon is asking God, will you, because you dwell with us, meet us in these prayers. He even says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes on account of your name and prays toward this temple, hear their prayer. And last, he says, if they sin against you and there's no one who does not sin and you're angry with them and they end up going away into captivity, even in captivity, will you hear their prayer if they turn their hearts back to you? Solomon is speaking to something that is going to happen. He has the wisdom to predict these scenarios that the people of Israel are going to go through. It's not wisdom that he lacks. So what is it? Because Solomon prays this beautiful prayer, and then after finishing the prayer, he says these words. Uh, He stood and blessed the assembly of Israel in verse 55, and then says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke to Moses, his servant. And the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he has commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And then this verse really gets me. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. As at this day. We see Solomon highlighting all these ifs and whens, all these potential moments where the people are going to need God to hear their prayers. And then he says, be ready when that happens. May your hearts be wholly to the Lord so that you may turn to him when that happens. Because if you do, then God can continue to pour out his blessings on Israel. We can see God do what he has been doing, and now he dwells among us. How much more will he do that? Only let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God. See, Solomon prays this beautiful prayer and highlights all these moments, but what he doesn't say is, what happens if these are just words? What happens if The heart is not wholly true. What happens if the king doesn't model this? What happens if the king puts his own desires or his own wisdom above worship 
of the God who now dwells in this temple. Well, right after this, after the temple is complete, God appears a second time to Solomon. And he answers that question. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 9, it says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go out and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. God makes it really clear to Solomon and I think he makes it really clear to us that if we choose wisdom over worship, if we choose our convenience over his covenant, then disaster is the thing that awaits us. And, and I say we and not Solomon, because isn't this us? Isn't this just as strongly directed as us as it was to the king? And it goes for us as individuals and to us as a church. If we choose this nation's good or this church's good over God's glory, then we're in the same spot that Solomon and the nation of Israel are in. Solomon was supposed to be a mirror for God's goodness and wisdom. The nation was supposed to be this place that other nations could come and important people could come and marvel at the gifts that God had given, including this wisdom. And we're supposed to be the same. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit now, and people are supposed to be able to look at us and see Jesus. And yet, if we fail in that task, if we don't follow after him, can we expect to receive blessings, or is there a disaster that awaits? The question for us, and I said I've got a lot of questions this morning, the question for us is what happens when we put our good over God's glory? What happens when we put our good over God's glory. I mean, uh, I mean our nation's good. I mean our church's good. I mean our personal good. I mean any good over God's glory. I think it's a problem. And I don't think it's too hard for us to look around and say like, ooh, there's that public Christian that's doing this. Like, ooh, they're the worst. Don't do it like them. And yet, they're not here in this room. They're not watching this. I want to talk to you and to me. I want to ask the question, how am I, how are we, choosing our own good over God's glory? How are we choosing great wisdom over worship? How are we choosing to fulfill our convenient desires over the covenant promises that God offers to us? And I don't know the answer, 
right? This is not me calling things out specific to you. That's up to you, and that's up to us as a church to be on guard for. But what I don't want to happen is have a splinter like what happened in Solomon's heart divide our hearts so that one day we ask, why are we sitting in the ruins of the temple rather than in the presence of God? And God says, your heart's turned away from me. And so I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's uh, questions about your children or or questions about this country and it being a safe place or, or questions about your faith and wanting this faith to be something that offers hope but isn't challenging. I don't know what that is for you, but I know that if we don't wrestle with the question, then we'll be in trouble. I know that God doesn't like a divided heart and he's not gonna play second fiddle to anything else. The end result isn't just division, it's disaster. And we see it for Solomon. If we continue reading in chapter 11, we see, now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And he goes on to list all these different nations which God had committed Israel not to marry. And Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not holy, true, after the Lord his God, as was his father David's. And we see Solomon serving these other gods, building high places for his wives to serve and sacrifice. And the result is, in verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Friends, when our heart is divided, it leads to disaster. When our heart is divided, it ends in disaster. We aren't told exactly where this started for Solomon. Was it his faith and his wisdom or even his God-given wisdom? Was it his love for foreign women, even if he married the first to protect his kingdom? Was it his power and his wealth and his fame that led him to this end? Or was this all just symptoms of a divided heart to begin with? Scripture doesn't tell us, but it gives us these warnings along the way. What we do get to know is that Solomon builds the temple and fills it with wealth, garnered from nations and the people of Israel, but he also builds up his own palace and his own wealth and his own collection of wives and their gods and their religious practices. And still there are high places in Israel, and he even builds some himself. At some point along here, he lets his desire for the kingdom, his kingdom, take place over the direction that God has given him. At some point, he leans into his own wisdom over the worship of the Most High. At some point, he chooses the convenience of his own desires over the, over the covenantal promises of God. At some point, the nation's good, his kingdom's good, and his good took priority over God's glory. And God's glory was just some random byproduct rather than the other way around. And so, in the end, we're tasked with returning back to Solomon's prayer over the temple. And we realize that as much as he meant those words at the time, 
We never see him put them into practice. In the book of 1 Kings, we never see him turn his eyes back to the temple and ask for forgiveness. We never see him return to the temple and spend his time in worship. Instead, he's busy with his thousand women and building his kingdom and doing all these things that he thought were good for his kingdom and for himself and for his rule. I love that it's mentioned the God who appeared to him twice. And the challenge for us is where has God shown up in our lives that we have let slip away only to run after other things. And so the question for us and the question for Solomon is where was the quality time at the temple? What does it look like for us to do better than Solomon did? Next week, Pastor Jason is going to take us through the division of the kingdom that the Lord says is going to happen. But if we fast forward to the end of the book of Kings, we get to see the results of a divided kingdom and divided hearts. In 2 Kings chapter 25, it says that the temple of the Lord is set fire and the royal palace and all the houses in Jerusalem and every important building is burned down. And then it goes on to say that the Babylonians broke up all the bronze pillars and all the movable stands and take away all the treasures in the house of the Lord and bring them to Babylon. The very nation and the very wealth that were supposed to be God's glory, because of this divided heart, because of Solomon's failure, ends up not just dividing the nation, but leaving this place so that the Lord's words are what happens, right? Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house, they will say? Why do people hiss when they walk past the ruins of the temple? Because they forgot the Lord their God and served something else. You know, I'm never going to be as wise as Solomon. (laughs) None of us will. And yet we can avoid the disaster that he saw. If we deal with the division in our own hearts ahead of time, then we can deal with the blessings that come with serving the Lord. Rather than being people that those who don't follow Jesus look at and say, man, what kind of God, what kind of Christian is that? What kind of faith is that? We can live lives that people point to and say, hey, there must be something behind this. There must be something real at the temple that they worship. And we can say, it's not about the temple, it's about the person of Jesus who lives in me. We can be the city on the hill that Jerusalem was supposed to be, that displays the way of Jesus and attracts people to his wisdom and to his glory and to his blessing if we just follow him wholeheartedly. And so I want to leave you with these challenges. Have you put wisdom over worship in your life? Are you choosing convenience over covenant? Are you following your desires or the Lord's? Do you seek God's glory first or is your first thought to your own good? Wrestle with those questions. But again, if you do one thing, recognize that what Solomon lacked was time at the temple. He started there, he met with the Lord and he built a beautiful place but he seemed to leave it empty according to the book of Kings. What does your time at the temple look like? Are you worshiping? Are you truly worshiping? Ask yourself that. Do you trust in the promises of God and his covenants? Are you faithfully living according to his word? Are you willing to act for his glory even at the expense of what you want in this moment? I firmly believe that nothing is wasted if it brings God glory. And there's nothing like being a part of his kingdom. So don't let your hearts be divided. Let your heart 
therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God and see what light he can shine in and through you. Jesus, I ask that you would shine a light into our hearts and show us where we have that division. God, may you teach our hearts to be wholly yours. God, I know that as Solomon prayed, it can be true for all of us. If we just turn our eyes to you and ask for forgiveness and seek to trust you, that you meet us in that. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom, not for wisdom's sake, but for your glory and your good. In Jesus' name.